Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On this episode of Newt's World, three presidents, Jefferson... Madison and Monroe, are known as the Virginia Dynasty. They served as presidents from 1801 to 1825 and implemented the foreign policy, domestic and constitutional agenda of the radical wing of the American Revolution, setting guideposts for later Americans to follow. The three close political allies were tightly related. Jefferson and Madison were the closest of friends, and Monroe was Jefferson's former law student. Their achievements were many, including the founding of the opposition Republican Party in the 1790s, the Louisiana Purchase, and the call upon Congress in 1806 to use its constitutional power to ban slave imports beginning on January 1st, 1808. Here to talk about the Virginia dynasty, I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Kevin Gutzman. His new book, The Jeffersonians, The Visionary Presidencies of Jefferson, Madison and Monroe, details a time in America when three presidents worked toward common goals to strengthen the Republic. Kevin is a professor of history at Western Connecticut State University, and he has his law degree from the University of Texas Law School and PhD in American History from the University of Virginia. His books include Thomas Jefferson Revolutionary, James Madison and the Making of America, and Virginia's American Revolution, and Who's Killing the Constitution? Kevin, welcome and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. I'm happy to be here. You're welcome. Now, I noticed that you became a lawyer and then became a professor. What led to that pattern? Well, I would go into my very fancy legal office and count the minutes until lunch when I could go to a neighborhood restaurant and read a history book. And after doing that for a while, I decided, why don't I do this history thing full time? It does pay substantially less, but I still like it substantially more. So here I am. As you look back, just in terms of quality of life, 
Was that the right decision? I think it was the right decision. One other point to note is that one of the members of my PhD orals committee was Walter Sublinski, who I understand was on your PhD orals committee at Tulane. He told me that you were the smartest student he had ever sat on an orals committee for, but I will hurry to add that he said that before he sat on my orals committee. That's the spirit. So maybe I was the second smartest. Well, I don't know. I didn't ask him. I have great memories of being at Tulane and going through the process, both with the oral defense and then with the writing a dissertation. It was a good training. It's interesting. Your first book was a New York Times bestseller, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Constitution, back in 2007. Why did you write The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Constitution? Well, because in general, if one studies constitutional history in high school, in college, in law school, what he's going to get is John Marshall's side of the story. And I thought, there needed to be a conservative, a state-centered federal government side of that as opposed to a national government side of the story. And so that's what my book is. It's the only Jeffersonian account of American constitutional history in print, actually. And it was a New York Times bestseller. You sided with the Jeffersonians, who actually were very anti-judge. Well, actually, they weren't anti-judge. And in fact, part of Jefferson's argument with Madison to the effect that there should be a Bill of Rights was that he thought that good judges like the three outstanding judges in Virginia at the time could make good use of the Bill of Rights. Their complaint about John Marshall was that he wanted to collapse the sovereignty in the United States into the federal government. And Jefferson's chief political principle after republicanism, which of course is a given, was that the government was decentralized, that most authority had been retained by the states. So that's what the book is about. And it seems to me in that sense that there was a remarkably sharp divide, which we almost always ignore, between the Alexander Hamilton, John Marshall notion of a strong central government and the Jeffersonian belief that freedom was best protected by the states and that, in fact, you wanted to be very cautious about putting too much power in the federal government. That's exactly right. And that's one of the main themes of my new book. It's that Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe actually implemented this theory in the first quarter of the 19th century. The reason why Jefferson favored it, of course, was that he thought it was going to be only a very few people who, like him, could be president, vice president, secretary of state, governor of their home states. But on the other hand, if government power were decentralized, the average person could be highly involved in making the important governmental decisions that were going to affect him. So federalism seemed to him to be one of the main principles that the American Revolution had stood for. In fact, in one famous letter, he said that the reason the French Revolution had failed was that the French had adopted the policy of, he said, une indivisible, which is to say, one indivisible. And he thought this was a mistake. He thought that, at least in the United States, we had gotten it right, that Yes, there needed to be a central government with some few powers, but those powers were only the ones that the states could not exercise competently for themselves. So they were few. Since you did your dissertation at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, how much do you think walking those grounds and being around Jefferson's home and all that, how much do you think that attracted you to the three Jeffersonian presidents? That's an interesting question. The fellow who was my dissertation advisor, Peter Onuf, who probably in his generation was the leading expert on Jefferson, always said he had a conflicted 
relationship with Jefferson. That is, he was not what you would call a full-on fan, but he was not the kind of statue toppler that is so common today. And so I think it wasn't that I was being pushed into this by my surroundings. It was I had learned in college and in law school and in doing my own reading about the constitutional history of the country that this federal principle had been of significant importance to the people who made the revolution. And it did seem to me that by the time I was in law school, which was in the late 1980s, the principle of federalism had more or less been erased from American constitutional law. In fact, when I took the bar review course that lawyers have to take on route to taking the bar exam, I remember when the instructor was talking about the multi-state exam, which is a multiple choice exam, she said, if the 10th Amendment is one of the answers offered to you, you know that's wrong. That's never right. And I thought, how can that be never right? It's part of the Constitution. So I realized at that point, I wanted to know more about this general subject. And to some extent, each of my books has had a focus on this topic. It's not been the sole focus of any of them, of course, but it's one that I've come back to over and over again because it was of preeminent importance to many of the people who made the revolution, to many of people even who were involved in making the Constitution. I've always been very struck that Jefferson was, in fact, an extraordinarily good politician, that he had some knack of attracting and organizing and arousing people. Do you have that same sense that, in fact, there's a strange subtlety to Jefferson that made him both very intellectual and aloof, and at the same time made him somehow very attractive to the everyday rural farmer? Well, I think that's true, but I think actually it goes beyond Jefferson. It really reflects the status of people of his class in Virginia society. So at the time of the revolution, of course, people were sent off without having been elected by the general electorate to be congressmen from the various states. And we have a lot of evidence from newspaper accounts and from correspondence at the time that the common folk in Virginia were actually proud of their political leadership, even though virtually all of them were from the same class as Jefferson. So they were generally moneyed men. You had to be at a time when having political office didn't come with a salary. Actually, when the General Assembly in Virginia was sitting was harvest time. So it was hard to be away from one's farm for more than a week or two. And so this idea that there was a ruling elite was one that we don't find a lot of resistance to in colonial or early Republican Virginia. That's a point I often make to my undergraduates. You'd think today that if you had only people who were highly moneyed and independently wealthy in some states' congressional delegation, their opposition would make that point. But in early Republican Virginia, that doesn't seem to have been a point that came to mind. People really weren't unhappy with it. The idea that they should be unhappy with it, I think, is a later development. Jefferson, it seems to me, really developing a party based on principles and ideas and in that sense, as you describe it, his first inaugural address is really different from both Adams and Washington. Can you sort of expand on that? Washington's second inaugural address, if memory serves, is three sentences long. And Washington's first inaugural address essentially is a pledge that he will try to live up to the duties that are now incumbent upon him. On the other hand, Jefferson's first inaugural address lays out the program that these three presidents and their congressional allies are going to seek to implement 
they don't know it at the time, of course, but are going to seek to implement over the following 24 years. And what he thinks he's doing is describing the fruit of the revolution. He thinks, and of course, nowadays we wouldn't agree with this wholeheartedly, but he thought that the Republican program was the program of the revolution, that it stood for, first of all, relying on common men to defend their country in case it were threatened, that it stood for having lower taxes than the Federalists had wanted to have, that it stood for a fealty to government, despite the fact that there weren't impressive old families running it, that there wasn't a king who had been ordained by God to be the ruler of the country. In fact, of course, he famously said, this is the strength of the country. This is why America actually has a stronger government than any other government in the world. People respect their government because it isn't made up of people to whom they're supposed to defer. So the first inaugural address is both a kind of party platform and prospectus and statement of Jefferson's own political principles, which, of course, he <laughs> doesn't ever clearly separate from what he takes to be common American principles. So one point to note about Jefferson is that he did have quite the ego. He did tend to equate the common man's opinion with his own. He did tend to equate American principles with his own principles. On the other hand, we have to notice that the electorate often rewarded him and his followers on the basis of exactly that claim. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Jefferson does build what is in effect a machine and basically over the course of about 12 years annihilates the Federalists. I mean, the Federalists have been sort of the dominant party under Washington Adams. Adams mismanages it and ends up in a big fight with Alexander Hamilton and splits the party. And then from that point on, there's just a steady downward slide. One could think that Adams split the party or one could think that Hamilton split the party. I guess that depends how one looks at it. But 
Jefferson's understanding of what had happened in the 1790s was that Washington was everybody's hero. He was Jefferson's hero. He was Madison's hero. Madison died with, you know, statues of Washington and paintings of Washington all over his house. And Hamilton, Jefferson thought, had insinuated himself into Washington's good graces and then used Washington's name and prestige to get Congress and the people to agree to a program that they otherwise wouldn't have agreed to. And of course, I'm not saying I agree with this, but that was the way that Jefferson understood what had happened. And he thought now this was over. Now Washington was gone and Hamilton was gone and the people were going to see sense. He famously said to one of his closest political allies, John Taylor of Caroline, that once Dr. Taxman showed up at the door, the fever would break, that this temporary phantasm would pass and the American people would become themselves again. And then, he, of course, he thought that the political tide of the rest of his life proved that he had been right about that, that the revolution of 1800 had been as real a revolution as the revolution of 1776. And in a way, it had been, and it was a remarkable transfer of power from one group to another in a way that you really don't see much of in peaceful ways up to that point in Western history. I mean, it's a remarkable achievement on both sides. That is that Adams, in the end, is subordinate to the will of the people in a way that, say, Cromwell would not have been. I think that's certainly true, although one thing I discovered in writing his book was that in drafting his first inaugural address, in which he doffs his cap to Washington, Jefferson in his first draft intended to say good things also about Adams. But then Adams left town early the day of Jefferson's inauguration, and so he scribbled that part out. So you have now no mention of Adams, and everybody knows that Adams left town in very ill humor, to borrow somebody else's phrase. And so the general impression has been, well, the two of them weren't getting along. The parties weren't entirely getting along. And, and Jefferson didn't intend for that to happen. He thought he could say that these two men had been greater than he. And so he recognized that it was not going to be common for anyone to leave the presidency with as good a reputation as that with which he had entered it. And he thought that he would have the same fate. So he hoped that people would give him some slack when it came to their agreeing with his policy choices or his administrative choices from time to time, because anybody was bound to err in this high office. Jefferson makes a decision that two terms is enough, which Washington had done. Washington actually really wanted one term and got talked into that second term. Jefferson was one of the ones who talked him into it, yeah. And then, of course, you've got Adams, who'd like to have had a second term, but was defeated. In your judgment, why did Jefferson decide the two terms was enough? Well, there are two things here. One is he thought that he was following Washington's example, and he thought that it was a good example. And the other thing is, if you look at his 30,000-plus surviving handwritten documents from starting when he was a teenager that cover his entire political life, one theme you see running through them is, I'd rather not be in politics. I'd rather be home at Monticello. I think I'm doing my duty here, but I'd rather not be. When he was president, he spent much of the year at Monticello. And if he had had his way, he would have been spending, he said, he would have been spending the whole year at Monticello. So I think one reason why he limited himself to two terms was he thought it was a good principle. 
And the other reason why he limited himself to two terms was, if he's to be believed in any of these many documents in which he said this over that long period of time, he didn't want to be away from home. He thought politics were a duty. He didn't think they were that much fun, and he'd rather have gone back to his farm. In the middle of all this is a guy who had at one level argued for smaller government, more limited government, who vetoes a federal government building a bridge across the Potomac on the grounds that the government shouldn't be doing all these things. He turns around and he buys the Louisiana Territory, which in a sense is about as big a decision as any president's ever made. How do you see that having evolved? There was a real question about whether or not technically the federal government could buy an entire territory like that. Well, as far as I understand, the only significant Republican who had any question about this was Jefferson himself. So, of course, the purchase was made by two diplomatic agents of Jefferson and Madison who were Republicans, prominent Republicans, Monroe and Livingston. And they sent the treaty home to Secretary of State Madison, who was giddy at the idea of purchasing Louisiana. And then he forwarded on to the president who came up with these constitutional scruples. Madison's answer to him was, well, the Constitution in Article 2 says that the president can enter into treaties with the advice and consent of the Senate. He said, I think a reasonable way to read that is, since it doesn't specify what kinds of treaties, that includes what are the common kinds of treaties. That would include treaties of war, treaties of peace, treaties of alliance, trade treaties, and although that's not true now, it was true then, treaties to buy and sell territory. So Madison didn't even think this was a question. And in fact, the two of them discussed this question with senators they knew, with other people they knew who were prominent Republicans. And again, the only one I'm aware of who thought it was a constitutional problem was Jefferson himself. And finally, Jefferson asked Madison, and he himself drafted constitutional amendments to make it constitutional on the assumption it wasn't already constitutional. And Madison persuaded him, you know, we don't have time for this. They virtually, as soon as they had received the communication from Monroe and Livingston, they got another communication from Livingston saying, you'd better hurry up because Bonaparte is talking about changing his mind. We, of course, we don't know whether he really was thinking of changing his mind, but he apparently instantly told Livingston, you know, I think this was a bad idea. Let's forget about it. So the idea that they had better hurry up and ratify this treaty was one that Jefferson finally bought. And he said, well, I guess occasionally there are going to be fugitive instances in which the chief executive is just going to have to make a decision and then rely on the people to express their acceptance of it or their rejection of it at the next election. So he says, I think we're going to have to throw ourselves on the mercy of the people. But again, I don't think there was any other significant Republican who had these qualms. I think all the rest of them thought it was constitutional. And of course, Jefferson then promptly organizes Lewis and Clark to go all the way to the Pacific and what's one of the great explorations of all time. Which, of course, was done for military reasons. At least that was a kind of constitutional cover for it. But Jefferson throughout his life had been a trailblazing ethno-historian. In fact, I have a colleague as an archaeologist who tells me that the techniques Jefferson used in excavating an Indian mound near Monticello were followed for over a century after he publicized them. So they were the state of the art among archaeologists in America until the early 20th century. 
And he was interested in Indians. He was interested in flora and fauna. He wanted to know everything there was to know. And in fact, people didn't know much of anything about the West. One thing he told Lewis and Clark was to bring him back a mastodon. Well, they had been told by the Indians there are mastodons out there. People forget this, but when Columbus arrived in the Western Hemisphere, there was no writing. So if you have only oral tradition, you might think that animals that became extinct 10,000 years ago still existed. So he was, of course, disappointed there were no mastodons, but he was just ecstatic with much of the other material they'd sent home to him. And in particular, he was very interested in Indian languages. He hoped eventually to be able to prove that man's languages had not originated in the old world. They had actually originated among the Indians. And when he was president, he intended to write a book about this. He took all the lexicons Lewis and Clark had collected to the White House and, of course, he didn't get to it. We've had other presidents who wrote copiously while president, but Jefferson was not among them. So he sent this stuff separately from himself back to Monticello. And when they got to the, I believe it was in the Potomac, it may have been in the James River, some guy broke into one of these chests and found that there was nothing in them but paper. And so he threw the paper in the James River. And that was the end of these lexicons, which were in several cases the only evidence that we would have had for the languages of some Indian peoples that now no longer are discrete peoples. It's kind of a sad story. But Jefferson's mind just spanned all kinds of human knowledge. He basically wanted to know everything there was to know. And he hoped to be able to prove, as I said, that human language had started here. He actually earlier had been involved in a long-running dispute with the leading biologist in Europe, the Comte de Buffon, over the question of whether animals degenerated in the Western Hemisphere. This was the state of the art among biologists in Europe, the idea that because of the environment of the Western Hemisphere, that the Indians were shorter, they didn't have facial hair, they didn't have pubic hair, they had fewer children per couple, there are various reasons. He said the New World doesn't have cats as big as the Old World, it doesn't have mammals of other kinds as big as the Old World. There's something in the environment, it's making everything degenerate. And of course, the implication was, if you migrate to the New World, you'll degenerate. And people don't remember this, but at the time, American politicians were trying to persuade Europeans to move to the Western Hemisphere. So Jefferson and Ben Franklin took up this cause and argued about this with European biologists for over a decade and finally persuaded the world that, no, it wasn't true, that animals don't degenerate in the Western Hemisphere. For this reason and others, a defender of American Indians for most of his life. I think in terms of the range of their interest and the brilliance of their mind, he and Franklin stand above all the other founding fathers. Franklin's astounding. My favorite Franklin story is when he was, I think when he was a very young man, the first time he went to England, he had the theory, somehow he came up with the theory that the oceans must have currents that went in different directions depending upon the depth at which they were running. And of course, we now know that this is true. But what he did was on his way to Europe, he mapped the ocean currents by using empty wine bottles and he had other people who were on the ship with him, helping him lower these bottles to particular depths. And I don't know how exactly they mapped this out, but he proved that this was true, that the ocean was several layers of water. It was not just big soup. Well, the two of them are in a different league. 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. But now Madison who comes along and succeeds Jefferson and is his partner in creating the first modern political party. Madison is brilliant, but it's a very narrowly focused kind of brilliance. He's very different from Jefferson in that sense, wouldn't you say? I think he only cared about governments. At least if he cared about anything else, he didn't leave much sign of it. So while it was true that Jefferson was interested in ethnohistory and biology, and for more than 30 years. He kept records of the weather at Monticello. They're the most complete records we have from that time. He just was interested in everything around him. On the other hand, as far as I could tell, and I wrote a book called James Madison and the Making of America, it was about Madison and constitution making. The only thing Madison really cared about was constitution making. He really only cared about government. So he, of course, became highly schooled in government and was far more practical than Jefferson when it came to government. But I don't know that he had any other significant interests. Well, maybe Dolly, but he destroyed his correspondence on that subject. So we're left with government. I see him as being remarkably forceful. For example, spends several months with Washington, convincing Washington that he has to go to the Constitutional Convention. He is a key player in thinking through the Constitution and writing the Federalist Papers. He's probably the key figure in the first session of the U.S. Congress and developing all sorts of things. But then when he becomes president, probably the worst run war we have is the War of 1812. And it's kind of like when you got to the action phase, it's just this huge drop-off between Madison, the writer, and Madison, the leader of a nation at war. Right. He was a good advisor. People don't recognize how significant an advisor he was to Washington in the first term of Washington's administration. But you're right. When it came his time to be chief executive, he was at sea. And it's hard to exaggerate the extent to which the War of 1812 was a debacle, chiefly because from the top, there wasn't really organization to it. So 
The United States went to war. They declared war after Madison had given to Congress a long address explaining the situation in which Americans found themselves. And he concluded by saying, and so the United Kingdom is at war with the United States, but the United States are not at war with the United Kingdom. You should consider what to do about that. Now, he didn't think that the president should call on Congress to declare war. He was only an executive. So it was for Congress to make that decision for itself without any executive coaxing. But this war message had given it all kinds of information that would have led it to say, well, we need to arm ourselves. So after the declaration of war was voted, one member of Congress made a speech in which he said, you're going to go to war with the mightiest power in the world. You have no men. You have no money. You have no ships. What are you thinking? You know, and you'd think, well, the president would have considered those questions before he gave Congress this message, but he didn't. And so after 15 years or so had passed, when the war was long behind, Madison got a letter from a younger Virginian, a Virginian of the younger generation, saying he was writing about the revolution and he was going to cover the period all the way up through Madison's administration. And the two of them went back and forth. And then finally, the young man, who was a member of the Lee family, said, well, of course, there's going to come a point in my book at which I have to say something about your appointments. And I don't know what to say about them because, well, the implication, of course, was they were all so awful. And Madison, of course, didn't have to be told what he meant. So he answered him by saying, well, you have to consider the factors that a president has to take into account in making appointments. First of all, we have to have geographic diversity. Secondly, we have to have people who have connections. Thirdly, they have to be able to afford to come to the seat of the government and serve without being paid very much. And he went through all these criteria that he had used in choosing people. And you just kind of think, well, you can understand why John Armstrong ends up being war secretary, even though he was the guy who hatched the Newburgh conspiracy during the revolution. He ended up being James Madison's war secretary. And John Quincy Adams, who was a senator at the time, said this was the most disgraceful appointment in American history. It's just unbelievable. That this guy ends up being war secretary. And then, of course, a show in the book. Armstrong was semi-competent, mostly because he didn't want to cooperate with the president. The president would tell him to do things, and he would say, well, we don't really need to do that. And Madison would say, we'll do it anyway, and then wait months, and then say, have you done this? And Armstrong would say, no. One thing was, he told him to prepare the approaches from Maryland to Washington, D.C. And Armstrong said, well, why would you do that? If the British were going to go up the Potomac, they'd be heading to Baltimore. They wouldn't come to Washington, D.C. There's nothing here. And so Madison waited several months, and then he said, well, how have you done about appearing the approaches? And Armstrong said, well, I haven't done anything. I told you before. If the British were coming up to Chesapeake, they'd be heading to Baltimore. So finally, the time came. The British land a force in Maryland. It marches across Maryland. It gets to Bladensburg. They have the famous confrontation between American and British forces, which is just a total debacle. And the next day... The same British force burns down the Capitol, burns down the White House, and so on and so on, right? Well, Armstrong died thinking this was Madison's fault, right? So, and in some sense, it was Madison's fault because at the second time he asked him, have you done that yet? He should have fired him, but that was not his personality. So not only did he not fire him, he didn't check on the question whether anybody had done what he'd been telling him to do, and that meant the approaches weren't prepared. And it's not clear that the American forces could have held off the British anyway. But that's a good illustration of 
Madison's management style. It really wasn't management style. I think it was probably a management style he had picked up running his plantation. You know, he could tell people what to do and they did it. I often think of the British burning the Capitol because when I was serving in the Congress, the stone stairway that goes up from the House chamber to the Speaker's office is in fact called the British Stairway. Because it is literally the stone stairway the British ran up with torches to burn the building down. There's still smoke stains in the White House, too. And, of course, it then led us to one of our first great national heroes in Andrew Jackson, which was a story of its own. But now, finally, you get to the last of the three great Virginians in Monroe, who is the youngest of them, was a very, very junior officer in the Revolutionary War, and this is quietly, persistently involved. Other than the Monroe Doctrine, when you look at it, do you have a sense that they're gradually losing energy by the time they get to their third president? Well, the Monroe administration was responsible not only for the Monroe Doctrine, but also for annexing both of the Floridas and for the Transcontinental Treaty. And by the time Monroe left office, the United States was going to be one of the world's great powers. It was unavoidable. And people thought so. And not only that, but during the Monroe administration, in fact, it was the same day that John Quincy Adams signed the Transcontinental Treaty with his Spanish interlocutor in Washington. He went home to his mess house and he found that three, I think three of the other guys who lived there had spent their day arguing McCulloch versus Maryland. So these happened on the same day. It's just kind of astounding. But Monroe had followed Washington's example in taking tours of the United States, and that's where we get the term the era of good feelings. When he got to the great Federalist centers of New York and Boston, people fed at him. The great and the small turned out to see him. Tens of thousands of people lined the roads to hurrah him on the way. And, of course, he had hoped that eventually there wouldn't be parties. That was something that Jefferson had hinted at in his first inaugural And Monroe did not appoint a Virginian to his cabinet, I think because he didn't think there should be another Virginian president, and that would have qualified somebody for that position. So there are several things Monroe did that are of significant importance. One thing we haven't mentioned is that Jefferson's Treasury Secretary and Madison's first Treasury Secretary was Albert Gallatin, who planned to pay off the federal debt. And you often hear people say, well, Andrew Jackson's important because he paid off the federal debt, and he actually paid it off on the date that Albert Gallatin had planned during the Jefferson administration. So that was another accomplishment of these fellows, right, that they put federal debt on the road to extinction. They couldn't, of course, have imagined what it is today. By the way, I always try to point out to people that with Hamilton and Gallatin, our first two great secretaries of the Treasury, were both immigrants. Right. Well, it's, I guess it's arguable whether Hamilton was an immigrant. He moved from one British colony to another. But Gallon was definitely an immigrant. He came from Switzerland. And it's interesting that he came from Switzerland because you've heard the expression, dukes don't emigrate. But on his father's side, he was a Galatini. And the Galatini family were among the founders of Geneva. And Gallatin's ancestors included five chief executives of Geneva. His mother's maiden name was Durozzi. So he was noble on both sides of the family. And at some point when he was in his late teens, he went to his mother and said, I'm tired of Geneva. It's just not interesting. I think I want to go to America. And he had a best friend from school. The two of them had been to the best schools in Switzerland. 
And the two of them decided, well, no, we're going to move to America. Did they speak English? No, they just came here. So Gallum ends up teaching French at Harvard for years. And then he decides that Harvard, Boston, this place is boring. And if you thought someplace was boring in the United States, where would you move? Well, his answer was Western Pennsylvania, right? So he moves to Western Pennsylvania just in time to be in the middle of the Whiskey Rebellion. And people from Western Pennsylvania elect him. It's a crazy story, Albert Gallatin's story. He's a very interesting fellow, I think. First, they elect him to be in the state lower house of the state legislature. Then they elect him to be in Congress. Then he becomes a senator. Of course, the Federalists in Congress make fun of him for having this thick French accent. If anybody ever had a Gallic nose, Albert Gallatin had a Gallic nose. In fact, there's a funny note he writes to some friend of his about his new wife. He says, well, she's not that handsome. But she's sensible. She's got a nice personality. She's got a good family. And reading it, I'm thinking he's describing himself, you know. The two of them are just alike. And by all accounts, they got along great. He lived to be a very old man. He lived well into his 80s. And she was right there with him. He serves all three of Virginians? Yes, he served for over 11 years. So he's the longest serving major cabinet member in American history. And apparently was a genius. Yes, he was a genius. He, too, was interested in Indian languages and knew a lot about them. Kevin, I want to thank you for joining me. And we're going to have a link to your new book, The Jeffersonians, The Visionary Presidencies of Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, on our show page at newtsworld.com. And I want to remind all of our audience that this would be a great Christmas gift. But thank you for joining me on Newt's World. You're entirely welcome. Thank you to my guest, Kevin Gutzman. You can get a link to buy his new book, The Jeffersonians, The Visionary Presidencies of Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fairs. Discover more at viking.com. If you're committed to living a healthier life, you might want to look into working herbs into your wellness routine. There's a reason people have trusted them for thousands of years. Nature's Way understands that nature is the ultimate problem solver, and they're constantly inspired by the power of nature. For example, their ginger root and slippery elm bark have been traditionally used for digestive support. And St. John's wort, holy basil, and ashwagandha can provide mood and stress support. And because Nature's Way sources from around the world and does a ton of comprehensive potency and quality testing in their state-of-the-art lab, you can be sure you're getting top-quality herbs. To learn more, visit naturesway.com.